Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nineteen current and former members of the U.S. military have filed a lawsuit alleging they were sexually assaulted while serving. They claim that even though the reform has been promised for years, the military doesn't seriously investigate or punish sexual predators. On the program today, we'll hear the stories of former Utah resident Kelly Alvestepper-Smith and Daniel Hoffman, who are among the plaintiffs. We'll also talk with Salt Lake Tribune reporter Kristen Moulton. Uh, Later in the program, a conversation with Amy Ziering, producer of The Invisible War, a documentary film on the subject. We'll also be talking with Josh Connolly, staff member for uh, Representative Jackie Spear. She has introduced legislation, H.R. 3435, Sexual Assault Training Oversight and Prevention Act, uh, which would take reporting, oversight, investigation, and victim care of sexual assaults out of the hands of the military's normal chain of command. Uh, Representative Spear calls uh, rape in the military a uh, national epidemic. Uh, We're joined uh, in the first part of the program by uh, Salt Lake Tribune reporter Kristen Moulton. Welcome back to the program. Hi. Happy to be here. Uh, Good good to have you with us. Uh, We have uh, Kelly Smith with us. Welcome to the program. Hi. And uh, Daniel Hoffman is with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Let's start with you, uh, Kristen Moulton. Uh, you had a big piece uh, earlier in the week uh, in the uh, Salt Lake Tribune on this. Uh, tell us uh, what this lawsuit is about. This was recently filed, and uh, wh- what are the uh, plaintiffs seeking here? The um, the plaintiffs, they're 19, as you mentioned. Um, 14 of them are women and five are men, and they're from all over the country. They filed suit in the federal court in San Francisco and essentially, I mean, they do ask for compensation, but the main point is to, to it's mainly a, a lawsuit intended to, to get change from the Department of Defense. They claim their constitutional rights to due process, speech, um, equal protection were violated. The big change that the attorney um, seeks in this, she told me, is to get the military to stop um, relying on the chain of command to make decisions about whether or in the investigation of sexual assault and whether to prosecute. Um, her claim, um, and these plaintiffs' claim, is that that's not, it's not justice when um, when the military can decide whether to prosecute its own. It's mm-hmm. as if you have an unbiased, or you do have a biased jury in their view. So um, that's their their contention, and that's what they're seeking. It's the fifth lawsuit filed by this same um, attorney out of Washington. Um, and I know that you're going to hear later from the producer of the Invisible War. Mm-hmm. She's very much part of that documentary as well. This is, I don't know if you'd been aware of this uh, to, to this extent before, that, that you, you know, you've delved into this story. I, I know I hadn't, but it's kind of a, a vague notion of, of some problem, but uh, it seems like this is this is a pretty big problem. You know, I, I've been on the beat just a little over a year, and early on I read, you know, I started reading that there there were these instances, but I had not, and I had been trying to find victims for quite some time to tell their stories, because as you and I both know, the best stories are when you have real people to tell them, and, and I hadn't been successful, and um, was put in touch with Kelly in early August, just before she moved to Texas, so I was preparing to tell her story, and we were still talking by phone and whatnot. And um, anyway, but yeah, I guess that mm. is not about me. But what I mean is, yes, it's everybody is aware. There's this background, and every so, so often you see stories on it. But um, I think the Department of Defense, Leon Panetta, sec- new, well, Secretary for the past year and a few months is putting more emphasis on it and, you know, making some changes. Of course, those on the other side say they're not enough as long as the chain of command is still in charge of investigating its own. But anyway, yeah, I think it is a huge issue. That documentary, The Invisible War, is probably appropriately named. Mm-hmm. Before we get to uh, to, to uh, Kelly Smith's and Daniel Hoffman's uh, stories, um, what's the response been from the, the Army? This is, uh, of course, uh, Secretary Panetta has been making uh, some measures. I understand he's watched the, the documentary. and uh, uh, But on the other hand, um, it, it seems like there's a lot of people uh, thinking the, the uh, military should move faster on this. Any Any official word from the military? 
Well, not on the lawsuit. I mean, each they don't respond to lawsuits as most uh, defendants don't, so they aren't um, commenting on that. But you know, I think it, it seems like like every month there's a new news release from the Pentagon about some reform that they're making, um, some new emphasis, some new training. Um, some of the reforms last spring were that they they did push the decisions or the investigation the decision whether to prosecute higher up the chain of command so that it's not a soldier, marine, sailor's immediate um, unit commander who gets to decide, but somebody a little higher up, a colonel. They created a, or they said they will create special victims units in each branch of the military, things like that. So, you know, they are making changes, but that one big change is is the thing that... Um, that the military doesn't want to go there in mm-hmm. taking this out of the hands of the chain of command. Mm-hmm. If you just joined us, uh, 19 current and former members of the U.S. military filed a lawsuit alleging they were sexually assaulted while serving. And they claimed that even though reform has been promised for years, the military doesn't seriously investigate or punish sexual predators. There's also legislation being proposed by Representative Jackie Spear, Democrat from uh, San Francisco. We'll be talking with uh, one of her staff members later in the program. Also, a documentary on this uh, subject won the Audience Award at uh, Sundance Film Festival. It's called The Invisible War. We'll be talking with the producer later in the program. We bring in now um, Kelly Smith and Daniel Hoffman. Let me start first with you, uh, Kelly Smith. Um, and, and first of all, to both of you, we really appreciate you coming on to, to tell your story. It's It's got to be difficult for you. Uh, uh, Kelly Smith, you, uh, I understand, grew up in Green River, Wyoming? I did. And uh, at some point, I guess, moved to Utah, and that's where you joined the military from? I actually uh, joined the military um, from Green River High School. I was 17 uh. when I enlisted. And, I moved to Utah when I got out. Okay. Uh, and what were your... What were your hopes going into the military? What would you what you want to accomplish? Um, I actually wanted to make a career of it. I started, uh, you know, I started tracking down recruiters when I was 15 years old. I always knew I wanted to enlist in the military. Um, wasn't sure quite what I wanted to do. I just knew that, you know, it's definitely something that I wanted to do, and I wanted to um, really have that as my career. Hmm. And uh, what were you, I, I think you signed up as a, a linguist, I think? Right, a Korean linguist. Yeah, the, you had... Interest in the Korean language, some experience with it, or what? Uh, that was just interesting to you. No, I actually didn't even know Korean was a language. Um, it's the military actually picks your language for you based on test scores and things like that. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess you know things were were proceeding well. Yeah. And and then what what, what happened? Um, one night um, I was. Station um, at Fort Lewis, Washington, um, woke up in the middle of the night with um, somebody raping me, and um, I screamed, and he ran out of the room. I didn't say anything to anybody. I didn't want to report it. Well, that morning, about 7 o'clock in the morning, um, somebody came to my room and said that I need to go see the first sergeant. So I went and saw the first sergeant, and he said that he understood that something had happened last night. And he wanted me to go over and talk with a psychiatrist at Madigan Army Hospital. Um, went over, met with a psychiatrist. I didn't want to tell him either what happened. And he told me that if I didn't tell him, that I would receive a dishonorable discharge. So I went ahead and told him the story. Um, got picked up by the CID, which is, you know, the Army's version of the FBI. Um, was taken to um, an interrogation room and actually interrogated for eight hours. Um, accused of lying. They kept asking me the same questions over and over. Um, and then about the seventh hour into it, somebody came forward from CQ and said that um, they had heard me screaming and saw this man running from my room. Um, they went and picked up this soldier and um, asked him, you know, what had happened. Of course, he denied it, didn't have any idea what anybody was talking about. Um, they threatened him with a polygraph test, and he signed a confession. Um, the uh, first sergeant told me that they wouldn't prosecute him unless they prosecuted me, too. For what? I don't know. Um, but So I was threatened also with prosecution. They weren't going to do anything to him. Well, they actually put me in the hospital um, to un- undergo therapy, um, and about a week later, they put my attacker in the hospital with me. Hmm. He, his room was two rooms down from mine. There's no security there. He could have easily come back into my room in the middle of the night 
I had to sit next to him every day in therapy, and we're supposed to be, you know, talking about what had happened and trying to get over it. But the guy sitting right next to me, um, you know, I raised concerns said that, you know, he shouldn't be here, and I was told that I needed to be more reasonable and um, basically just be quiet about it. Um, he actually ended up getting a full retirement from the military. You know, he receives his full pay, uh, medical, um, all of that. He receives everything. So, so you uh, it just seems <laughs> parts of this just seem outrageous. You they they, yeah. they put you in therapy with your attacker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Now, why did they did they give you a reason why if they were going to prosecute him, they were going to prosecute you as well? No, no reason at all. Hmm. Um, now, when you when you go into the military, I've never been in the military, but I understand mm-hmm. it's uh, you know they it's sort of, it's a very close knit group. You're you're taught to right. re- rely on the person next to you. Yeah. And so I guess it must be even more outrageous when something like this happens to you from your from your comrade. Well, not only that, but he was 55 years old, and earlier in the evening we were all in the common area of the barracks. Uh, you know, the, I think it was like the first season of American Idol was on. We were watching that. There was a football game on. I mean, we were all having a good time. And he um, even told me, like, you know, you remind me so much of my granddaughter. So I never expected that from him because his age and the fact that I reminded him of his granddaughter. I mean, that's why I had absolutely no idea that it was him. I just, nothing he did made me feel that something was wrong. So... It was just a really big surprise. What was the attitude of your your fellow soldiers after after this happened? Did you get you know support, encouraging words? What what happened? I got some support. Um, it was actually really where people took sides. Um, some people, um, you know, were really great friends to me after um, it happened. Um, you know, always made sure I was never alone, that they went with me everywhere. Um, and then there were some that said I was ruining a career and that I was lying. Um, so it was really just a line was drawn, and some people agreed with me and some people agreed with him. Hmm. So. And I guess the the reasoning from the, the, the chain of command in, in perhaps not prosecuting was we don't want to ruin a career? Right. They didn't want to ruin somebody's career based on what had happened. Hmm. Um so they didn't do anything. They just pretended that didn't happen. And so this, you know. so what would you like to have happen to this this man? Um, I want him to pay back every single benefit he's received, and I want him to be registered as a sex offender. Um, he sh- that should have happened in the first place, um, and he definitely doesn't deserve an honorable discharge. I got an honorable discharge, and I didn't do anything wrong. He got an honorable discharge, and he raped a fellow soldier. Um, He doesn't deserve that. Mm. You know, that's something that, you know, people work hard for to get that honorable discharge, and he, you know, commits really a felony, and he's not entitled to that honorable discharge or any of the benefits. Mm. So I want him to have to pay everything back. Uh, this, I understand, has definitely affected you after, after right. you came out of the, the military. Uh, maybe you could tell me in some of the ways that that's, that's affected you. Um, I have not slept a night through in over nine years. I wake up, have, you know, horrible nightmares. At one point, I actually thought I had had a stroke because, you know, I was slurring my words and I was trying to say one word and I was coming up with an entirely different word went to the doctor and it's from sleep deprivation. I'm not sleeping enough because I'm not able to sleep the night through. Um, I'm actually absolutely terrified of the dark. If you turn the lights out on me, I cry hysterically. I cannot stand the dark. Mm. Um, I don't trust anybody. Um, I'm just a very, I'm a very jumpy person um, and very untrusting towards the world. I don't you know, the person walking behind me, I swear that they're following me and they're going to try and attack me. You know, when I get into my car, I'm convinced that somebody's in the backseat of my car and I have to look before, you know, I can drive anywhere. Um, it's just I live a life of fear, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, did Have you gotten help from the Veterans Administration? I have. Um, I went, I did prolonged exposure therapy, Um and that's really where you just relive it more and more and more. It tries to get your body used to um, talking about it and thinking about it so you don't get, you know, 
your body doesn't go hyperactive. And as far as, you know, fire or flight, um, but unfortunately it's just, I guess it was too little too late because I just did start doing that. Um, So... So th- there was a, a period of time. I understand a lot of a lot of people in the situation. It uh, a delay before you seek out therapy, perhaps. Right. Um, you know, I didn't. I didn't want to talk about it. I honestly just wanted to pretend that it didn't happen, and you know, go on with my life. And the longer I did that, actually, the worse everything got. Hmm. Um, it just made it harder and harder. You know, nightmares got worse. My fears got worse. You know, I'm OCD about checking my locks, um, so really not getting the therapy didn't help me, um, but at the time, I just, I didn't want therapy at all. I just wanted to completely ignore it. And you moved to Texas, I understand, in part to kind of get away from some things. Yeah, um, Utah, you know, we'd moved up there to help a family member that had cancer to help care for her, and um, Utah, I just was having a really big string of bad luck, and so finally um, decided to come back to Texas hmm. and settle back down. So yeah. you did. You did connect with an, an old flame. I understand it. Got, got I married. did. <laughs> um, I married to my high school sweetheart. Actually, yeah. um, we met eleven years ago. Um, we got married in two thousand eight. Well, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and so, uh, finally, before we go to, to Daniel Hoffman's story, uh, you, I mean, this has got to be hard talking about this, but I, I assume you you want to shed a light on the on the problem. I do, um, because not talking about it isn't fixing anything. Um, you know, I actually, I want to meet with Congress. I think Congress should hold a hearing and invite, you know, have us 19 come there and tell the story, because they're not being told the entire story. It's you know, people are putting their spin on it, you know, as far as, like, Leon Panetta. And, I mean, you know, a couple nights ago he said on the Rock Center interview that these are tough cases to prosecute and we need to understand that. Mine wasn't. My guy signs a confession. There's nothing tough about that. It mm-hmm. was simple. It probably wouldn't even gone to trial because he signed a confession. Um, so I really I want to speak to Congress and um, make sure that they're hearing everybody's whole story and, mm-hmm. you know, and go from there. So, well, appreciate you so much telling your story. Yeah. Um, if you just joined us, we are uh, talking about uh, sexual assault and rape in the military. Nineteen current and former members of the U.S. military have filed a lawsuit alleging they were sexually assaulted while serving. They claim that even though reform has been promised for years, the military doesn't seriously investigate or punish sexual predators. Uh, still to come, we'll, ta- we'll be talking with Josh Connolly from uh, Representative uh, Jackie Spears' office. She's introduced legislation on this topic. We'll be talking with Amy Ziering as well, producer of a documentary on the uh, subject called uh, The Invisible War. Just before we go to Daniel Hoffman, I want to bring uh, Kristen Moulton back in. Uh, just in, I, I don't know if you've reported on, on, on crime. I don't know if that's ever been your beat. Was no, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've I've been a journalist for 30 years, so I have done it occasionally, but never a beat. No. But uh, it just seems like there's a disconnect here from my lay, lay viewpoint that uh, if this kind of thing, uh, for example, in Kelly Smith's case, this is, it happened in a, in a civilian setting, the, the assailant would have been prosecuted, probably successfully. Right, I think, yeah, I think that, that, you've kind of hit the nail on the head as far as the problem here. And that is because a soldier, Marine, sailor, whoever's uh, chain of command gets to decide whether to investigate or prosecute. And so often they know the person, they know both parties. And so their own personal biases come in there and that sort of thing. So that's, that's why it is different or how it is different than the civilian world where the prosecutor or the, police don't necessarily know either usually don't know either party in this case they do and Uh, so they have all sorts of other factors besides justice that they're looking at mm -hmm. and one may be that a 55 year old soldier is very close to retiring and he spent however many years in the military and in kelly's case they told her they didn't want to ruin his career well that's because they were looking out for him yeah 
Um, and uh, by the way, you're you're welcome to join this conversation if you would like with a question or comment to one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five one eight hundred eight two six one four nine five or upraxis at gmail.com is the uh, email. Let's turn to Daniel Hoffman. Uh, Daniel, uh, uh, we appreciate you uh, telling uh, your story. Uh, so how did you uh, get into the military? What branch did you go into? I joined the Army National Guard when I was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it seems like people people do get in in young. That's the same age, I think, uh, Kelly Smith. What what did you hope to, to accomplish there? Actually... Before um, the recruiter came to my high school and started talking to us about joining the military, I had never considered it. Um, I don't come from a military family besides my grandfather. And um, my mom raised me alone, my sister and I alone, and she gave us so much. And she, um, she gave us more even when she didn't have anything to give. And I wanted to give back for everything that I was blessed for. Um, and... I also I joined to please my recruiter. Some mm-hmm. of it was to please my recruiter. Mm. Well, by the way, what, what part of the country did you grow up in? Um, I grew up in Indiana. Okay, uh, so you you uh, you went into the to the military. What what was your assignment? What did you what did they have you do? Um, I joined as supply, an automated logistical supply specialist. Mm-hmm. What was your plan? Were you planning to make this a career like like Kelly was? Um, I'm not exactly sure what my plan was at the beginning. Um, my assault happened, um, as soon as I joined. So I think anything that I did have planned or wanted to do, um, went out the window when I was 17. Um, my recruiter, he came to our high school, like I said, and he befriended me and I grew up without a father. Um, I never really had a dad and, um, he was a fatherly figure that I looked up to that I didn't have, and my mom trusted him. And um, almost as soon as I joined and signed the papers, he came to my swearing swearing into the military, and he told me how proud he was of me. And I can still hear him saying that in my head. Um, so he started um, inappropriately touching me and um, asking me to take off my clothes and undress in front of him. And this continued for months. And when you're 17, you're not taught the military justice system. You're, you don't think you have anywhere to go. And he was my only contact, really, in the unit. Um, and then when we went to training at Camp Atterbury in Indiana when I was, I was 18 at this time, um, he attempted to rape me and... Um, then threatened me at drill one weekend saying um, that he gave me everything and he can take it away. And when you're told that if you get a dishonorable discharge, it can ruin your life and you'll never be able to get a job again, what are you supposed to do when you're so young and you don't grow up? And you know, my recruiter looked for women um, who didn't have fathers and Six other women reported him after I did, and he had 31 counts of sexual assault, battery, misconduct, rape, um, abusing his authority. But the military didn't want to handle it. They pushed it off into the civilian court. They said that the majority of it happened um, when the females were not on active duty, so that it was a civilian matter. But he was on orders. Um So I went through four years of grand juries and depositions and um, his lawyer blaming me, telling me that I wore short shorts. Um, So I must Mm. have caused it. Yeah, that's uh, unfortunately that you you hear about that. That's 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 amazing. They would they would blame this on you. Exactly. So, um, yeah, it was just a horrible experience. Mm. Whatever happened to to uh, to your assailant? He, in 2008, while I was overseas in Iraq, he got sentenced to four years. Um, The prosecutor wanted to give him a deal, let him out without jail time, but the judge denied her request. Um, And he got four years. He was let out um, in a year, and he's a registered sex offender, and he lives 20 miles from my house, and I passed by his small town. 
every time I leave my house and go to school. Hmm. And everybody looks like him yeah. when I pass through the town. Hmm. What was so? I mean, this happened as soon as you went into the military. That then you you say you you, you did go to Iraq. I did. Uh, so how did how did that affect you out when you're in in the combat zone? Well, I volunteered to go to Iraq mm-hmm. and um, got placed with a unit. And while everybody knows my name in Indiana, um, that. So every unit I got transferred to, they knew who I was. They didn't have restricted reporting or unrestricted reporting. Um, It was newer, I think, when I um, reported it. So uh, everybody knew who I was. Mm. When I got, when I was deploying to Iraq, um, soldiers got counseled to stay away from me, um, that they would get sent to jail for a very long time, or I would send them to jail for a very long time. Um, I got placed on duties that I shouldn't have been placed on. Um, you know, I'm very intelligent. I have a lot of skill. I can do anything that I'm taught to do. And I got put in tower guard. Um, and I got treated very, very poorly for standing up for myself. And I was alone. And I say being in the, being a woman in the military, you have two choices. You know, it's it, you. You're willing, and you let men treat you how they want to treat you, or it's unwilling, and you get touched inappropriately. You get sexually harassed, and you can say something about it, but you'll be alone. Hmm. So it's it's retaliation, basically. It is. Yeah. Uh, so, um, what did did you stay in the military? Did you are you out of the military now? I'm waiting on a medical discharge right now. Oh, yeah. And what's uh, you, you told me a little bit about how this has affected you. This this uh, continues to to affect you. It does. Um I have post traumatic stress disorder and generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. Um I've been hospitalized twice um um for attempting suicide. Um it, I'm doing better, and I graduate nursing school in December, but it's a daily struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, she was talking about how it's really hard to sleep at night. Um, I couldn't sleep till 3 o'clock in the morning last night because you're scared of the nightmares. Um, I walk by a mirror in my house in the middle of the night, and I get scared of my own reflection. And when you're with PTSD, when something triggers you, your body feels like it's back in the trauma. Hmm. So your heart races and you can't breathe and you feel like your world is coming down on you and you have to do everything you can to talk yourself down from that state of panic. And it's very hard. It's very hard to have relationships. It's very hard to trust anybody. And a lot of people don't understand um, since this lawsuit One good thing that has come out of it thus far is that I have been connected with a lot of amazing people who've been through similar situations, and it's given me people that understand because for nine years, nobody has understood, and I have had nobody to talk to. Nobody in the military, when this happened to me, offered me any counseling, offered me, they didn't offer me anything. Mm. Uh, so I, I am glad you've been able to connect with some some people. Congratulations on nursing school, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so we really appreciate you telling your your story, and I, I, I assume that uh, you're hoping the same thing Kelly Smith is is hoping with this lawsuit and 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 all this publicity that, that some changes actually happen in the military. I um, I want changes to happen, and I think it's going to be a very very long process. And in the meantime. I just hope that enough publicity gets on this that it stops happening for, I mean, I want it to stop happening forever, but if I can prevent this from happening to one woman or she can hear me talking right now and I can give her hope that it'll stop happening, then I, then that's what I'm here for. Because I don't want somebody to have to live a life of fear and nightmares like I do, and like the rest of us do. Hmm. 
Daniel Hoffman, appreciate you telling us uh, your story. Uh, Kelly Smith as well. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you. And uh, Kristen Moulton, just uh, briefly at the end of this segment, uh, tell us again this, this, this what this lawsuit is about. Um, 19 current and former um, military service members are suing um, the Secretary of Defense and some other top officials for their constitutional rights being violated, or claiming their constitutional rights are being violated. Hmm. Kristen Moulton is a Salt Lake Tribune reporter. You can read her full story, a big story on this in the Salt Lake Tribune recently. Uh, Kelly Smith and Daniel Hoffman, um, I guess uh, former and uh, current uh, members of the military, respectively, uh, plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Thank you to all of you. Appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you. And uh, coming up following a brief break, we're going to be talking with Amy Ziering, producer of a, a documentary film on this subject. It's called The Invisible War. It's following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio is provided by the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information is at usu.edu science. Support is also provided by the law firm of Hilliard, Anderson, and Olson with offices at the Riverwood Business Complex at 600 South Main. Concentrated practice areas include estate planning, trusts, wills, and probate. Information is online at hao-law.com. Thank you for listening to Access Utah. Tom Williams with you. And we're talking about rape in the U.S. military. Uh, There's a lawsuit that's been filed Plaintiffs uh, are alleging that uh, not only were they sexually assaulted, but the military is not responding in an appropriate manner. This is an encore presentation. This broadcast originally aired October 3rd of last year. The legislation mentioned in this program, entitled the STOP Act, did not pass on its original introduction. However, it will be reintroduced next week. We're joined now um, by uh, the producer of The Invisible War. It's a documentary on the subject. It won the Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival uh, in uh, in January. And uh, we uh, welcome in Amy Ziering. Uh, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. So uh, how did you come to this this subject? You're, you're a, a filmmaker. I, I think you make uh, both documentaries and feature films. Yeah, that's correct. And... Um... We were just looking for a, a documentary project, and we are always reading articles and researching different issues, and uh, we came across an article about five or six years ago about this topic, and we were stunned, the director Kirby Dick and I were stunned that neither of us had ever heard anything about it, and it seemed like so incredible that this was really happening at, at, at this horrific rate on U.S. soil. So we just started digging in and, and doing investigative work and felt we needed to make a film about it. How did you uh, proceed? I, I understand that you, you you put out appeal on Facebook to to find people to talk to. Yeah, we did a whole uh, a lot of different methods we used, but one was a lot of social media. That was extremely helpful um, because as 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 people who know about this issue or who see our film see that it's it's something a lot of vic- a lot of survivors are not very happy to come forward with, you know, or or, or don't really feel comfortable coming forward. So. Uh, Social media gave us a nice way of communicating with people who might not be that forthcoming otherwise. Um, so that's how we connected a lot with a lot of the uh, survivors. And you call this, I believe your film calls it, an epidemic. Yeah, it is. I mean, um, the statistics are uh, uh, 20%, and that's a conservative estimate um, by the DOD itself. So uh, one in five, is, is for me, seems... Uh, a little egregious uh, and of epidemic proportions. One in five women in the military is is sexually assaulted. Uh, that's what the that's what the recent studies have shown. Yes, hmm. and eighty six percent of assaults go unreported. Wow! So if you if you do the math, it's quite frightening. And uh, this statistic is very striking, or, or statement: a female soldier in combat zone is more likely to be raped by a fellow soldier than killed by enemy fire. That's true as well. Yes. Uh, and this is not just women. Uh, you say 1% of men in the military are sexually assaulted. It's actually a gender-neutral crime. As many men are assaulted as women, but we have fewer women, so uh, so they become statistically higher, you know, the percentage-wise. Mm-hmm. But in terms of outright numbers, it's pretty even, men and women. 
So a, a, a rape uh, in, in any circumstances, of course, is horrible. What are the special circumstances that a victim is, is likely to uh, face in the military that, the, that the, he or she would not face, perhaps, in civilian life? Well, what the public doesn't know is that when you're raped in, in the military, you don't have the same resources available to you that you do in civilian life. First of all, you can't tell your um, – you can't go to your family for comfort. You need to stay on your base. You need to report often very much uh, – often the reporting you need to do is to the to people that know your perpetrator in civilian life. Obviously, police officers never have anything to do with any of the people involved in their crime, but because units are so small, more often than not, the commander is familiar with the person you're claiming has committed this crime. Um, so that makes it a very awkward situation, particularly if the person is a senior-ranking commander, you know, a senior-ranking um, military person, and you're a lower-ranking one, and you're claiming they, they committed a crime, well, the commander knows that other person a lot better than you, so there's sort of an intrinsic bias towards believing, you know, believing, questioning your credibility as opposed to the perpetrator's credibility. So it's that kind of inherent bias that often makes these cases not really looked into, investigated with the same rigor they would be otherwise. And it's it's just, it seems very puzzling that, that, that many of the perpetrators are, uh, they, they don't seem to be being punished at the same level they would in civilian life. Yeah, there's a lot of, it's, it's sort of a perfect storm conditions. It's also, you know, commanders are super busy and it's it's under their jurisdiction to sort of investigate and decide whether to prosecute these crimes. So it, it's often not a priority for the commander, so the perpetrator doesn't get, you know, doesn't, so nothing happens to him. It's often just, the commanders also don't necessarily, it doesn't really look good on their record to have this kind of thing going on in their units, so there could be a conscious and unconscious incentive for them sort of not to recognize this crime or move it forward to prosecution. So there's a lot of reasons, a lot of things that go on that keep this issue from being covered up and swept under the carpet as opposed to, as opposed to properly prosecuted as it would be in civilian life. In your view, uh, you know, having delved into this, where, where does the blame properly lie? Is it does it lie at Secretary Panetta's feet, to the top commanders in the military? Where, where does it lie? Uh, yeah, the blame clearly lies with top-level officials. I mean, what, we've, what we know about our military is that it's quite capable of, of doing incredible things. And actually taking on social justice issues, you know, in admirable ways. I mean, the military was the leader of um, help lead our society on racial integration. It was ahead of the curve on that. When it decided that that was a problem, it really made it a priority, and then it became a beacon for society at large in terms of racial integration. Uh, you know, our society fell in step after the military was much more integrated than, than regular American society. And we're saying, likewise, they really need to recognize this issue, top leadership, and take it seriously and go after these enemies within with the same purpose and courage that they go after all the enemies without, you know, that we perceive as our, our threats. You know, and they really have not taken this issue seriously, and they don't understand that it's really affecting in incredibly detrimental ways not only our troops, but also their families and society at large, because these perpetrators leave the military and there's no record of that, they've, that they're serial rapists. Now, it does seem like the, the you know from a popular view that the military is very efficient when they really go after something. You you feel they just have not made this a priority? It's 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 not just a feeling. It's 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 an indisputable truth. I mean, there are wonderful soldiers. Most commanders, when they watch this film, are absolutely appalled. But there are obviously the system is not working and um, we have seen time and again when I talk to service members and they report oh I had a wonderful experience nothing happened at this base nothing happened at that base and oh my god my life fell apart at this base I said what's the difference and they said my commander my commander did not take sexual harassment you know took sexual harassment seriously did not condone any kind of crime and it's you know so the message has to go to these commanders that you know if they're not they're, they need to be held accountable for what goes on under their watch and they really need to prosecute rape crimes and that message has not been given. Well, this part of Access Utah, we're talking with Amy Ziering, producer of uh, the uh, documentary The Invisible War. It's about uh, what the, the, the producer, the director, calling an epidemic of rape in the uh, U.S. military. We're talking about the subject on the program today. Uh, by the way, The Invisible War, 
um, is available now on iTunes. So uh, uh, another few minutes with uh, Amy Ziering, uh, producer of The Invisible War. Apparently, um, the, the Secretary Panetta did watch the movie. Yes, he did watch the movie. Um, after Sundance, we started having very high-level screenings. for. We tried to get encouraged high-level screenings in, in the administration and in the Pentagon, and we succeeded in getting some of those um, through appeals to friends and relatives and through people that had seen the film at Sundance. Um, and uh, it got to Panetta, and he actually went up to one of our executive producers, Jennifer Siebel Newsom at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, and thanked her and said, um, Jennifer, thank you for making this film. And, um, uh, you know, it, you know, in fact, two days after watching it, I, I held a press conference. It had an impact on me, and I held a press conference to announce that we would start making significant changes. So that was incredible. Yeah, uh, an impact from the movie. And he has ordered some changes, apparently. Yeah, he has. He's, he's moved the, the adjudication of these crimes up the chain of command. He hasn't moved it outside the chain of command. And that's what our film, and, and that's what we are advocating, and that's pretty much what everybody who really studies this issue is advocating. You know, so we're hoping that with additional pressure and additional you know, high-level um, officials seeing the film, they will move to take that measure as well, because that way it really will be an unbiased system, you know, where these crimes can be fairly adjudicated, as opposed to still within the chain of command, where there still could be corrupting influences. Uh, the Secretary also announced that each branch of the Armed Forces would establish a special victims unit. Uh, you're saying that uh, these are good, promising steps, but, but not sufficient. Yeah, they're promising first steps, but they are in no way sufficient. Uh, so I'm guessing that you uh, support uh, the bill introduced by Representative Jackie Spear, a Democrat from San Francisco, which would, uh, I understand, take decisions on whether to prosecute away from military's chain of command and give it to an impartial office. Well, we're very, very much in favor of this, yes, of Jackie Spear's legislation. Um, I wonder um, what other measures that you would like to, to see uh, taken, and uh, how fast do you think uh, a change can happen here? Uh, another immediate measure has to be that women, when they report, men and women, but women in particular, they can't be subject to reprisals for reporting and re-victimized. I mean, there's a culture in many of these units where the woman is immediately blamed. It's almost like going back to the 50s in the U.S. It's, it's crazy. And, um, and, and I have seen so much damage from that kind of uh, castigation and cruelty, you know, and desensitivity to someone who's just been a subject of a violent crime, that these women really can't heal. It's not just the act itself, but it's the way they're treated afterwards. And that whole attitude and care has to change. And we're hopeful that will as well. I don't think anyone, I, I think our film really helps show just how devastating, you know, this is to our women soldiers who are, you know, really the best and the brightest and giving giving their all, and they really needed to be treated with the same fairness and civility that a civilian would who's the victim of these kind of crimes. Yeah, I could see how this, this the problems that you would have anyway in the, in the horrible aftermath of a, of a rape would be exacerbated with with some of the things you've been talking about. Do you do you, do you see that uh, victims who uh, you have a hard time functioning? I have never seen this kind of trauma, and I'm not I'm not being hyperbolic. I mean that's part of the reason why we made this film. I was so stunned, and I actually in researching it, we found out that PTSD is three times more severe in survivors of military sexual assault because it's a crime of incest. You're being, you're, you're being betrayed not by someone else, but someone who is supposed to defend you and be your brother and have your back and take a bullet for you. And no one then believes you. No one sides with you. You yourself are blamed. So all these things are really psychologically damaging in a very severely traumatic way. I mean, it's a betrayal of your core. And it's very hard to, to get back on your feet from that um, without any, you know, without the kind of resources. And also, another thing I want to say that compounds the horrors. More often than not, these survivors have to report the next day and work the next day with the very people that have perpetrated, you know, that have assaulted them, mm. you know. And so that is a hugely devastating and traumatic situation. And so, yes, I, to go back to your question, yes, I mean, I, the impact is much more than people would think. And I, I you know, I hope that our film helps show that. 
I was reading about uh, a case where the the victim w- was ordered, uh, or I guess went into group therapy, and the, and the assailant was was there in the in the group therapy session. Uh, yeah, that, I, yeah. Um, there's many situations like that. Uh, uh, you know, women who are uh, one woman who will be interviewed in our film. She was told she didn't want to be near her assailant, so they put him right in front of her when they were going on a march so that she could always see where he was. And she said, you know, she was so, you know, horrified by that that she just wanted to to jump off. You know, they were walking on some some cliff, and she kept thinking, I'm just going to jump. Why do you think this hasn't been, I don't know, more greatly publicized? Why why do you think this is... I think for for a lot of people, the extent of this is is just sort of coming out. Uh, there's two reasons. One is that a, it's not a story the military would like to have come out, so there was no sort of pressure or reason for them to sort of bring this forward. Um, and the second reason is that the nature of the damage to the survivors is so severe that they're not the kind of people that then become, you know, uh, radical advocates for their cause. I mean, they're so busy trying to put their lives together. I can't tell you, you know, talking to women 10, 20, 30 years out who just became sort of permanently dysfunctional um, by everything that had happened to them in the military, that they're not then sort of championing the cause. There's a third reason. A lot of them don't realize it's an epidemic. I had a woman drive three hours um, to see me in Ohio. We had a screening in Ohio. And to thank me for making the film, she said, because... Before she saw the film, she didn't know this happened to other people, and she'd never forgiven herself. She thought it was just she was just a weak person. Mm. And uh, so I think for all those reasons, it's very sad, but that's, that's how come this has not come to the fore sooner and, you know, and ignited the public outcry it should. I imagine this, this must have been a pretty hard film to make. You're, you're talking about horrible situations. You're talking with traumatized victims. It was the hardest film I've ever made. And yeah, I don't, I don't wish it on anyone. It's just guitar. It was, it was heart wrenching. And if you see the film, I think the film conveys that, um, that the, the power of this, uh, this event and all that it can wreak. Uh, um, so yes, it was, uh, it was a very difficult film. Is there anyone from the film that especially stays with you? Oh, they all do. Mm. I, I don't. I, I so many, so many. I. I I don't, I don't, I, one woman who's only in the film for a second, she said to me, um, I remember when we were leaving her house, she said, Amy, even if you don't make this documentary, or even if you make this documentary and you don't put me in it, thank you so much for coming today because you're the first person that ever believed me. And uh, maybe just to recap, what what do you think it is going to take to um, to, to solve this problem? It's a very... It, uh, I'm telling you, uh, overnight, this, the military could radically reduce the number, the incidence of these crimes. I mean, they can't ever eliminate rape completely. We know that. But the damage, these, uh, the, 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 occur- the number of occurrences and the damage they inflict could be overnight uh, radically reduced if they really took this on with the seriousness of purpose that they need to. And they held commanders accountable. They made everyone understand that rape is a crime that needs to be prosecuted immediately and that survivors cannot be persecuted for reporting. Those are two things done. <laughs> mm. Well, Amy Zering is producer of The Invisible War. It's a documentary on this subject. It uh, won the Audience Award at Utah Sundance Film Festival, and it is available now on iTunes. Amy Zering, thanks you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. Appreciate it. More to come on Access Utah. And we turn next to finish the program with Josh Connolly, who's a staff member in the office of Representative Jackie Spear. She's a Democrat from San Francisco, been very active in this area, and in fact has introduced legislation. Uh, This is House Resolution uh, 3435, the STOP Act. And uh, Josh Connolly, welcome to the program. Thanks. Good to be here. So tell us what the STOP Act is, what it would do. So the STOP Act keeps these cases within the military, but sets up a separate office um, of experts that would have discretion with these cases. Um, Basically, we think that the premise of the bill is that commanding officers um, don't have the expertise, and a lot of them have an ingrained bias um, that results in them not treating these cases fairly. So we set up this separate office 
all of these cases would go to them, um, and they would objectively and expertly decide the path that both the victim takes and the perpetrator. Hmm. Now, uh, we've heard uh, earlier in the program about uh, some reforms that Secretary Panetta has instituted. Uh, I assume Representative Spear is heartened by this, but doesn't think it's enough. Yeah, she thinks that Secretary Panetta has been acting on good faith, but the problem with his um, initiatives that he's um, announced is their old initiatives. They're either things that were mandated by Congress years ago or things that are already the status quo. And when you look at like bumping these cases up the chain of command. This is the status quo for since 2010 in the Army, for instance, and we've seen the numbers go in the exact wrong direction. Prosecutions are going down, convictions are going down, and commanders' actions are going down. Hmm. So I think the Congresswoman has very little faith that what has been proposed by the military so far is going to fix it. So in Representative Spears' view, this, this needs to be taken out of the hands of that chain of command? Out of the hands of the chain of command, no question. And so this act would, would do that? It would, it would create this, uh, uh, this office, I, I suppose. To, uh, how would that work? So they could, a victim could contact the office directly or could still con- tell their commanding officer, but they would have to immediately report that to this separate office that would then have immediate jurisdiction on um, the victim care and um, isolating the perpetrator um, and conducting the investigation. What's the status of the STOP Act right now? Has it gotten good reaction? Yeah, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have 131 co-sponsors more than any other bill um, on this issue. Um, but the way the House of Representatives works is the um, chairman of the relevant co- committee, which is the House Armed Services Committee, has discretion on what bills he decides to take up and vote on in committee and then get voted on on the floor. So we are trying our best to garner more support and create awareness because we think that when people read cases that are presented in Susan Burke's uh, claims, um, it's a Mm -hmm. no-brainer. This is a command discretion issue, and it needs to be taken out of the chain of command. In the meantime, I understand Representative Spear is um, she's inviting uh, anyone who's a survivor of rape or sexual assault in the military to, to contact her with, with their story if they'd like. That's correct. Um, stop military rape at mail.house.gov is the website. And uh, I'll repeat that, uh, stop military rape at mail.house.gov, if, if you'd uh, like to share your story with the Representative uh, Spear and, right. and help in this. Well, Josh Connolly, uh, thank you so much, staff member for Representative uh, Jackie Spear. My pleasure. And uh, thank you for listening today to Access Utah. Thanks for listening today.